Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Okay. Hi, it's Thursday night. I'm just back from Akhasana. It ain't over yet. Um, but I want to get in something while the day's still uh, here, this calendar day, uh, because I got a surprise uh, sponsorship, you might say from my friend, Professor Al Marcus in Minneapolis and in Haifa. Um, one of the friends I've made in the podcast without ever having met people but online. And uh, he's doing this as a Fushlem for his son. As a Fushlem for his son, David, David Yitzhak Ben Avram. Uh, and his son unfortunately ruptured his Achilles tendon last week, last Thursday, playing basketball. So that's a bummer. I did something like that once. It's very painful. And the recovery is not easy. Uh, so, therefore, I do hope that this will be a shtick or a fusha, uh, for a fush lamb, as they say, uh, and that the recovery should go as, as easy as is possible. <clears throat> okay. Um, since Professor Marcus and his son, both history, uh, took a lot of history in college, they told him he almost took a Jewish history as a major, and his son took a PhD in history in Columbia, although they haven't gone in that field. Uh, that put into my head, my noggin, general history, and today's July 14th, which is Bastille Day, the French Revolution starts today. And that's a major um, uh, event in Jewish history. Very interesting way. We still are under the impact of the French Revolution on July 14th. And it's particularly interesting, in my opinion, to contrast the two most important revolutions of the last 200 years in terms of their impact upon the Jews, now question, one is the American Revolution, one is the French Revolution, are two different, very different animals, and you and I, those who are listening to this podcast in this country and elsewhere, I don't believe we have anybody from France listening to this, I doubt it, because we're in English, English language, you never know. Um, but we, especially from Jews, have a very interesting take on the French Revolution. I'm sure everybody's familiar with Joe and Live from China saying it's too early to tell what the impact of the French Revolution is. Only 200 years, you know? So, uh, 1789 is more. It's actually, what is that, uh, close to 140 years. Something like that. So, uh, the impact on Jewish history is very interesting. And I'll tell you where I'm going. Once upon a, listen closely. Once upon a time, if you go 250 years ago, Europe and the Middle East, where the Jews lived, under the Christians and under Muslims, so all the countries in which they lived defined themselves in religious terms. So every country in Europe defined itself as a Christian entity. You get it? Christian entity. England was a pretty liberal place, relatively, but it was the Church of England. The, the king, the queen, is the head of the Church of England. I think you know that. France was a Catholic country. The king was his most Christian majesty. In Spain, it was his most Catholic majesty. It's not just important in the titles. The political theory of legitimacy was a religious one. That's an old way of thinking, and we Jews have the same. So if you have a Muslim, what's shot the uh, kingdom, the Medina, all the rest of it, is to follow the greater glory of God, to follow God's will. Organized society, 
in God's will as they see it. Christians would say it as they see it. And Jews would say the same thing. If the Mashiach came tomorrow, you ask a from Jew, especially very from Jew, are you going to have equal rights for everybody? He heck no. The Allah is that only uh, B'nai Yisrael can hold office and do this and that. And the Tosha was there, you know, basically on tolerance and on sufferance. The exact way the Jews were in these other countries. And consequently, there never was any question among Jews or non-Jews as to whether Jews should get, have um, civil rights or civil equality with the other people who inhabited those lands. You get it? So notice, it wouldn't occur to a Jew living in France or in Germany, in Prussia, Russia, wherever, Poland, you name it, papal states. It wouldn't occur to them, I should have the same rights as the Catholics or the whoever. It's not my country. I'm a Gullus. If I get my own country tomorrow... I'll do to them what they did to me. <laughs> you see? And so what she wanted in their frame of mind was um, a civil upgrade, um, greater tolerance, an easing of the difficult burdens. Okay? So they used to tax the Jews crazy. If a, if a ruler would cut the Jewish taxes in half, he'd be a chassid yimus this would be great. This Rana uh, Shalom is, is favoring us. If it would be mild in his treatment of the Jews, treat them fairly, he'd be a Gavaldi king. You gotta be a Tzadik Yisod He didn't give us uh, equal rights. Of course not. He's a guy I'm a Jew. I don't expect that. Like I say, if the tables are turned, as I say, they will be turned tomorrow. When the tables are turned, I'll do to you what you did to me. Because that's what God wants. You have to get that into your head. And so even the most liberal countries like England or Holland define themselves as Christian commonwealths for the greater glory of Christianity. Nothing wrong with that. That's the way they want to make it work. How did Jews fit in that was always an issue. Jews did the best they could. So if you went back 250 years ago, the two countries that were best for the Jews was England and Holland. They were Protestant countries. There was no question about the Jews having civil rights, but they left them alone pretty much. You know what I'm saying? No, they didn't bother you too much. You had certain uh, discriminations in there, certain impediments, but okay, big deal. You get what I'm saying? There were no ghettos. There were no familiar laws that only one's allowed to get married. There were no laws in those countries that Jews can't move here or this and that. I think you can even buy real estate, if I believe. And so what's the problem? What's the problem? You can't run for parliament, you understand? Can't be sheriff of London. Can't be sheriff of Nottingham. Big deal. You get it? That's how Jews thought. Now, as we know, within a few years of each other came the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Today, July 14th, the storming of the Bastille in Paris. So I'm going to talk about the French Revolution and then connect it with the American. The French Revolution was a very violent business. And... My goodness, they made a movie I saw a couple years ago, a four-hour movie, something of the French Revolution. Yeah, don't watch it. It's very accurate. They show you all the brutality of there. You know, shoving people's heads in the uh, smashing them against the wall. The French were pretty brutal. Now, the guillotine was an upgrade, get it? Less brutal. Now, in that context, the people who made the French Revolution, for their own reasons decided, as do with the French Enlightenment, decided to redefine the state 
as a secular entity for the first time ever in history. For the first time ever in history. So who knows? They made French Republic. So it's not a king anymore. They killed the king and the queen. I think you know that. The king and queen representatives of God. So God has nothing to do with the political process. Instead of making a republic, which would be a secular entity, and derives its legitimacy from secular, not from religious. And the republic will not be Catholic, won't be Protestant. The republic is, derives its power from the citizens. Went back to Greek ideas, but it doesn't matter. And so from 1789 1791, the people in France no longer were considered by the law. They rewrote the government, rewrote the laws as, you know, being under God and all the rest of it. That is your own private business. You know what I'm uh, Your relationship to the state is the second one. You live in the state, you were born in the state, you must follow the rules of the state, perhaps you participate in the government, however you work it out. Okay? So the definition of a Frenchman was no longer a Catholic, which it had been, but a guy who was born and lives in France, or something like that. In that case... The French, and by the way, the Catholics in France, woo, did they hate it. And they fought back bitterly. And if it was up to then, they would shecht and slice and dice all the revolutionaries. And unfortunately for the Catholics, the revolutionaries were tougher, rougher. And they sliced and diced the Catholics and burned them and threw them at the bottom of the river with uh, chains and smashed their heads in with boulders. Oh my goodness, look at the suppression of the Vendée. <laughs> if you're interested in that kind of thing. Massacre City. And so the revolutionaries prevailed, the Catholics did not. As a result, you have what we call the French Revolution. The state separated itself formally from religion. And then it had a whole bunch of issues to deal with. It started today on July 14th. It took a few years for the revolutionaries to organize themselves into the national government, national assembly. And then one of the items on the agenda, not the only one, but one of the items on the agenda is, what do you do with the Jews living in France? Because there were... Two sets of Jews living in France. One was the Sephardim in places like Bordeaux and Marseille, who are very assimilated. And the other one, because the Sephardim really were Moranos. So they had dressed and acted like Christians back in Spain. When they went and went to France, they still kept their Western stuff with them. It's only they could, after a while, practice Judaism. The other group was Ashkenazim, who lived in Alsace, Alsace-Lorraine, all the way on the other side near the Rhine River. They were Yiddish-speaking Jews, like Yekes, like Polish Jews, Ashkenazic Jews. Just to give you an idea, I'm talking about the rabbi in the Lorraine was the Shagasarya. <laughs> you see, that gives you an idea what I'm talking about. Now, they were not French. They didn't speak French. They spoke Yiddish. And their relationship to France, they had been living in the province that was conquered by the French army. And for a whole bunch of reasons, the French did not expel them, but treated them like second, third class citizens. That's the long and the short of it. Now comes 1790, 1791, and they figure, what do we do with these people? They lived here for generations. They're part of the framework. We can't discriminate them on the basis of religion because it's not a Catholic country anymore. We've separated ourselves from that, formally. And so what do we do? And so thinking it through logically, using this and not this, using their head and not their heart, they said, even though we hate the Jews, and Jews have a lot of disgusting things about them. Alpha became, we're going to give them complete and total civil rights. All right? And they did. First, they fired them in 1790, I think, and then the Ashkenazim in 1791. 
So I'm skipping over a whole bunch of things. But the key point is that there was expected a quid pro quo. Um, it's very famous. Clermont Tonnerre, one of the members of the parliament, said we give the, the Jews as Frenchmen everything, as Jews nothing. As Jews nothing. So that means that France expected in return for giving you full and complete civil rights, you'll Frenchify. Gallicize is the right word. So maybe not in religion, although they wouldn't have minded that, but you'll stop speaking Yiddish, you'll start speaking French, you'll dress like Frenchmen, you'll act like Frenchmen, you'll go to French schools, you become French, French, French in every way, except that on Saturdays you have your Sabbath instead of the other guys on Sundays. That's going to be the issue. So in other words, they demanded an exchange that wasn't formal, but was understood. In exchange, we're giving you the keys to the kingdom, equal membership in the club, we expect that you do stuff. And specifically, you deny your Jewish nationhood, you declare your nation to be French, and Judaism is just a matter of religion, what they call cult, cult. They don't mean the word cult like in America with a negative connotation. Cult is the French word for, uh, you know, religious, uh, a a religion that has ceremonies usually run by a clergy person. So that's what they figure. The Jews want to have a birth ceremony, a wedding ceremony, a this ceremony, that ceremony. Fine. Bury them with a religious... No, they wanted the Jews to become the, the, the counterpart of the Catholics. That the religion should just be life cycle stuff. But everything else should be secular Frenchmen. That was the idea. And if not, Achenvei. They never said what they would do would be Achenvei. And so here you have a major theme in modern Jewish history that starts today, which is, we'll give you civil rights, but in return, we want you to give up a lot. We want you to give up your separateness. We want you to give up your distinctiveness. And we want you to give up a lot of things in which you believe. In which you believe. As a Jew, one of the things you believe is Klal Yisrael. So Klal Yisrael Arabim Zelazeh in one way or another. Klal Yisrael Chaverim. No. Not true. Now you're a Frenchman. If we tell you to go out and kill German Jews in a war, you do it. And they did. You see? You don't regard yourself as members of a Jewish nation. Instead, they tried to impose on them a Christian analog. I'll give you an example. Has there ever been wars between, in, between France and Spain? Yeah, lots. Is this side Catholic and this side Catholic? Yes. Huh? It's got nothing to do with each other. Your Catholic religion has to do with your religion and heaven and hell. But your nationality governs whether you fight in the French army or the Spanish army. Same one of the same thing for the Jews. Okay? So they demanded Jewish self-denial. That's what it's called by the historians nowadays. That's a fancy term. Self-denial. They deny yourself. The uh, Jews, for a whole bunch of reasons, were willing to do it by and large. This is the story I did once in the podcast about Rav David Sinsheim, the Yad David. Okay, and by the time, and he was in the Napoleon Sanhedrin and all that stuff. If you're interested, you go back and find and listen. The iconic representation, therefore, of Bastille Day for Jews, for Jews, for Frenchmen, it's easy. They rushed the royal uh, prison, they tore it down. It was an uprising for the French against the the, the, the monarchy. It's a Gaisha story. It has it finished for the Jews. The iconic representation of the French Revolution 
for the Jews of France, just go to the cemetery where the Yad David is buried. as a Geisha cemetery, Perla says. You can find it online. Just Google on the cemetery, the grave of uh, David Zinsheim or something like that. And you'll see it's a big cemetery with all these Goyim. And there's one for him because he was the chief rabbi of France under the, under the Napoleon government. And so when he died in 1812, the French government said like this, since he was a French official, he'll be buried in the cemetery for French officials. I, we say that a Jew should be buried in a Jewish cemetery, not next to people not Jewish. Kevri Yisrael is a big deal with us, a big deal, even though I'm a coin by me, I know that. Wrong. Who are you more in common with? Uh, fellow Jews that you never met or something like that? Or French officials? This guy was a foreign minister. This guy was a war minister. You're the chief rabbi. That was the archbishop. Should be in the French cemetery. And I'll tell you the truth. Uh, I remember when I did the podcast, I have some Hasidim who listen, believe it or not. And I saw they went on the forum, and all that. In Yiddish, and one guy said, this, "Did you know the Yad David is buried in a Goyish cemetery? Let's sneak out the body." <laughs> and the other guy said, "Don't do that." Um, now the Yad David was a famous man and a great Godol be Yisrael. Just read the Chassam Sovers Hesper for him. They were great tzaddik. Circumstances were such that he was a victim of July Fourteenth, of the French way of giving rights. Which was what you take in one hand, you give what you hand in one hand, take away in the other. The question is, are you given more or do you take away more? That depends on your perspective. Now you have to understand the Jews in France, many of them, the majority, were perfectly willing to give up the Yiddish guy stuff in exchange for free acceptance and civil rights and being part of France. I'm sorry to say, but that's a fact. You understand? And ever since then, Judaism has been retarded, held back. In France. I hope nobody's listening from France. It hasn't. Only in the last 50, 60 years has been something of a difference. In the 1800s, early 1900s, uh, from Judaism was very schwach in France. And for some reason, the French uh, Jewish authorities felt themselves bound by the um, rulings of Napoleon Sanhedrin. I'm serious. And Napoleon Sanhedrin said, oh, we're French and more than Jewish. Uh, we can't oppose intermarriage. Uh, all kind of crazy stuff. Like I say, you'll listen to that podcast if you're interested in it. I also did it on the YouTube. Something about revolutions a couple years ago. A very famous incident. And it turns out that freedom... You know, they say there's no free lunch. So it turns out, according to this, there's no free freedom. Right? You want your freedom? You gotta pay. Just like you gotta pay for lunch? Somebody, Somebody does? So you got to pay for freedom. And the coin in which you pay for your freedom is your Jewish identity, your deep Jewish identity. That's why Zionism was always very shock in France. It's not because they were sophomore, because they were assimilated. You get it? Now, despite... What's interesting is, it's a very complicated subject I'm raising. If you look at France itself, from the French Revolution, from Bastille Day of 1789, down to the First World War, there was enormous anti-Semitism in France. So no, the guy didn't like the fact that Jews had civil rights. There was a lot of pushback. 
There was even moves by political parties in France to reverse the civil rights. Never happened. Now, the Dreyfus affair, which take place in the fin de siècle in the 1890s, is a reflection of this. Okay? It's a reflection of what I'm talking about. Now, the... I mean, it was the the anti-Semitism was pretty vicious. Now, and as you know, it asserted itself in Vichy government during World War II under Hitler and Marshal Pétain and Pierre Laval. Uh, after the First World War, there was a, a big decrease in it, interestingly. And I would say after the Second World War, there was a decrease in it for a bunch of reasons. Uh, not the least of which was the rise of the State of Israel. So the French figured, if we don't like Jews, keep going to go to Israel. Um, that's a complicated subject. But the point is, you can't say that the uh, promise of the Bastille Day, the French Revolution, was a glorious future for the Jews. Only if you deresonate Judaism, and only if you strip it of many of its essential elements, do you then say that it was uh, a glorious day for the Jews. It's a highly complex one, and many countries in Europe have followed the French example, in which you say, if the Jews want civil rights, you have to identify in many, many levels with the peoples and not with the Jews. Uh, Germany is a different story. There were a lot of German states, and I can't go into that now. That's too complicated. The other revolution of a different sort was the American Revolution, which was last week, 4th of July, you know, whatever, not long ago. You have July 4th versus July 14th. July 4th, July 14th. July 4th is associated, of course, as we know, with the Declaration of Independence, all the rest of it. The American Revolution was not violent in the way the French Revolution was. You had your share of violence here and there, but overall, it was a matter of fighting the British Army. And the Loyalists, I mean, I'm not going to deny that. In some places, it got pretty vicious. In some places. But Derek Claw, it was about the Continental Army, George Washington and those guys pushing the British out or, or per, persisting in the revolutionary struggle until the British stopped. Uh, and then, following it up a few years later with the Constitution. So the Bastille Day, the American Constitution, is at the same time. Both in 1788-1789. Now, um, which is interesting. There's a big difference between what we call the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The French Revolution was a revolution in which the old world was ripped out by the, by the roots and violently replaced with something else. The eggs were smashed, you know, without the omelets being made. The American Revolution was actually a fairly um, conservative thing on the social level. This is a very famous thesis of a book that was popular and controversial 100 years ago, Charles Beard, uh, but the, I forget the title, The Social History of American Revolution, something like that. Jewish Washington, Thomas Jefferson, these guys were rich men. They're capitalists, they're slave owners. And Benjamin Franklin, these other guys. They weren't revolutionaries like in the French Revolution, trying to turn the whole thing upside down. Wiping out whole masses of people. You get it? They were more British, more moderate. Uh, they subscribed not to radical enlightenment, but more balanced and moderate enlightenment. And they weren't—they didn't have this French mania for being logically exact and precise. 
they could live with imprecision and with a little bit of confusion. It turned out that that was a good thing. The American Revolution was really into freedom, not a strong government. The French Revolution was the opposite. They said they want the freedom, but then they want a very powerful government to like enforce the freedom, which really meant that the very powerful government would dominate the country. In other words, the French Revolution was followed by Napoleon, who seized power and became a king. The American Revolution was followed by George Washington, who refused to be a king. They offered it to him, and he, he turned it down. You see? Uh, that's a godless. He turned it down, because he said, that's not what we want. That's a, that's a real godless. Now, in the American Revolution, there were 2,500 Jews in the whole country. Nobody was thinking about passing a law giving the Jews equal rights, and they didn't. Instead, for their own reasons, having nothing to do with the Jews, having to do with various Protestant things in Virginia or whatever, they passed the Bill of Rights after the Constitution, which had what you and I call the separation of church and state, whether that's a completely accurate description or not, in which it says Congress will make no law involving religion, which basically means the federal government, not the whole America, the federal government cannot write a law that has the word Jew in it, or Catholic, or Protestant, or anything like that. See the legalistic way of thinking that they had? Okay? You can't write a law that has somebody's religion in it. There's a law for all men. By the way, racists, they were. They were racist. They could have laws saying white men can do this and black men can't do that. And that kind of stuff they did. But religion not. So once you tell me there can be no federal law, federal I say, which has the word Jew in it, that you cannot have, ipso facto, you cannot have a federal law that says a Jew can't run for office, a Jew can't own land, a Jew can do this, only a Christian can do this, a Catholic can do this, Protestant can't, those words can't be in the laws. Once you tell me that, Mimela, you tell me that Jews have complete equal rights to everybody else at the federal level. It's a self-denying ordinance. It's a negative freedom. You follow? Which is very different than France, where you had a very powerful government set up. Like I say, a government that was eventually seized by a dictator, Napoleon. And when the government, very powerful government was set up, then they, the government legislated, we give the Jews civil rights. And they named names. America, you can't use the word Jew, can't use the word Christian, can't use the word Muslim. You understand? It's an interesting shtick. Now, this had nothing to do with the Jews. It had to do with Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and the fights they had in their states over established religion, the Episcopalians versus the others, I'm not going into that. The Mela, the Jews came out better. Therefore, since there was nothing specifically legislating about the Jews, at Mela, there never was any quid pro quo, because there was nothing about the Jews at all. Do you hear what I'm saying? So the American tradition turned out to be better for Jews, as we know, who would not rather live in America than in France? Crazy. Uh, the American tradition turned out to be one which basically defined citizenship almost on a minimalistic basis vis-a-vis -vis the government. Because I told you again, the government's supposed to be weak. George Washington said, I do not choose to be king. Now, the Constitution has the possibility of the president being very powerful. This was not realized until Abraham Lincoln, who basically says, the Constitution closed me 
in in demonic powers. Nobody copped that. Okay? Uh, the way the American Republic proceeded was in this indirect fashion in which religion can't play any part. Therefore, uh, there's no such thing as you have to you know, give this or that up in order to be American or American citizen or run for president for that matter. You see? It's, it, it, constitutionally, you could be a Satmarchasa and run for president. No impediment. Okay? And the fact you can't speak English, it's no impediment. Doesn't say in the Constitution, the president has to speak English. Now, he doesn't be born in this country. He has to be 35. But doesn't say anything about, you know, cultural attainments. You see? Consequently, unlike France, the USA became happy hunting ground for super fumi. Okay, well, they came after the First World War, after the Second World War, because this country, uh, all you have to do is obey the laws, you know, be a good person, and that's it. You don't even have to wave the American flag. In fact, in this country, because the Constitution could spit on the American flag, I don't think you should, <coughs> but you can't. can't do that in France. You see what I'm saying? So there's a positive nationalism and a negative nationalism. Negative, I mean, in a good way. Uh, what's interesting is the postscript is that as I said before in America the way the American history went everything I just described was at the federal level they never said the states can't discriminate on the basis of religion and the states did do so so not Virginia thanks to Thomas Jefferson but New York and all the other states you could say Christians can do this Jews can't do that you had such laws. Um, they only worked at the state level. Uh, states' rights. Remember that? So if a state says, we want to make a law, they didn't do it quite this way, but they want to make a law. Only a Christian can own land. They could do it. Now, if it's federal land, they can't do it. And if a guy wants to run for governor of state, he must be a Christian, possibly. If you want a federal job, then your religion doesn't play any count. And I live in Maryland, where it's famous, Thomas. Je this state was a Christian state. Right? It didn't change until the 1820s. Thomas Jefferson was president in the early 1800s. He did not approve of the religious stance of the state of Maryland. He appointed a Jew as a like a federal attorney over here just to stick it in, in the face of the Marylanders. Now, I want to point out, nobody in Maryland bothered the Jews. You see, but it's a Christian commonwealth, they felt. Therefore, it should reflect Christian values and not values of people who don't believe in Christianity. The nature of American culture ideals was that little by little, even though it only applied to federal level, it spread to the uh, state level, to the local level. Because since the revolution was cast in the form of freedom, and you had all this rhetoric about liberty, and life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and all that other stuff, of which there was a lot, it really became politically incorrect. I mean this in the best sense of the word. To advocate for religious discrimination. Sarpeet, as a lawyer, you could have it in state level. Culturally, you couldn't. You, know, you want to know in the analog? As you know, there was slavery here. I believe all the states had slavery in 1776. Maybe not Rhode Island, but all the others had slavery, I think. All of them. Uh, which is interesting. After the American Revolution and the Constitution, 
and all the rhetoric about liberty, one by one, all the states in the North abolished slavery. Not the South. North. You hear what I'm saying? You know, New Hampshire and Vermont and then Massachusetts and Connecticut and so forth. Well, now, there weren't many slaves up there, of course. That makes a difference. There's still, once you put the word out there, it's a freedom. It's hard to make that compatible with slavery. In fact, if you know your history well, even the middle states like Maryland and Virginia around 1800 or so were actually thinking about abolishing slavery in the middle states. But then came the cotton gin and that turned around and things went in a different direction. Um, so I, I leave you with the idea that the French Revolution is actually kind of a negative business in Jewish history. It doesn't have room for a full Jewish identity and a full national identity of something other than Israel. You see, that's why Zionism popped up. The American Revolution is, is has a different cultural message, which is we have room for a lot of different people, and citizenship and nationality is almost kind of defined negatively. As long as you don't mess up, as long as you don't break the law, as long as you're not a traitor to the country, just mind your own business, tomorrow. France and many other countries in Europe was culturally homogenous. They're all French. Now, really, they're not, but over the course of many centuries, they pushed everybody to be the same French. <coughs> That's all mice by itself. You know, French Revolution standardized the language and created the National Ministry of Education that brainwashed everybody the same way. And the other countries of Europe did the same thing. Uh, State of Israel copies this, by the way. Uh, America, as you know, was a country of different ethnicities because it was such a gigantic continent. There weren't enough English willing to come over. <coughs> the attitude was, so let the others come over, you know, the French, the Dutch, the Germans, and so forth. And as long as they'll pick up English and Americanize, it'll be good enough. And that's what happened. That is what happened. <coughs> so that was almost perfectly made for Claudius Rowe because you could come here, be as Jewish as you wish to be, and negatively, as like I say, if you don't, as long as you don't break the law or hurt the country, there's no problem. So I leave you today, as we're finishing July 14th, with the two antipodes, the two types of revolutions and their effect on the Jews. One was, was a very strong and positive revolution, which demanded a lot from the Jews. The other one was kind of a negative you're getting rid of powerful central government, and therefore you're admitting the Jews and not demanding a lot out of them. Um, and look at the difference as things have turned out. Anyway, I think it's just something to think about. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.com support.rabbidavidkatz.com